Lord, we lift up our praise to you in recognition of your great faithfulness and covenant love which you have bestowed upon us in spite of us to the glory of your great name. Now, Father, I pray that you would cause this word that we're about to study this morning to land on soil that you have prepared. And may the seed of your word find deep soil in which to be rooted and may the fruit of it be our changed hearts for the sake of your great name and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me get you to turn to Joel chapter 2, although I am going to begin somewhere else. But to keep you from flipping back and forth, let me just have you go um, to Joel chapter 2, and I'll be there in just a moment. So I'm going to open the sermon this morning by reading the other half of the passage that Will led us in reading earlier. So there in Leviticus chapter 26, um, which we read, he, he led us in verses 3 through 13 on the screen. Um, what we read earlier detailed the blessings of God and His promises that He would lavish upon the children of Israel if they would walk in obedience to His commands. But that's not all the chapter contains. The section of Levi, or Levi, Leviticus 26, that followed what we read earlier, details the punishment, the curses, if you will, that God promised to pour out on his children, the children of Israel, if they rebelled against God, if they refused to listen, if they refused to obey him. And it's there that I pick up on our reading. And I'm doing this because you see both sides, what will let us in reading and what I'm about to reading find their fulfillment and fleshing out in the whole book of Joel. Um, so I want this to kind of be fresh in your minds as we begin to look at the next portion of Joel. This is the word of the Lord, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 to 20. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all of these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Turn with me now, if you would, to Joel chapter 2 where we're going to turn our attention to what comes next in this passage. When we last looked at this section, a great throng of God's people had gathered at the temple. In fact, the priests were called on by Joel to, to position themselves between the vestibule and the altar. And it was there that they cried out to God. And what was it that they cried out? They cried out to God, be merciful, be merciful. Be merciful. Now, based upon how our text begins this morning, which we'll, we, we're beginning at verse 18, 
It's clear to see that the people were broken before the Lord and as a people they repented of their sin, although the details of such are not given. Repentance. To turn away from sin and to turn toward God. With the exception of the first verse and a half of the section that we're going to be studying today, the entirety of the rest of this is from God's perspective. It's God speaking. All of the Bible is God speaking, but this, Joel pins it in such a way that you know that this is God saying what he is going to do. God saying what he has done. Um, so we, uh, let me just draw your attention to the way this begins. Look at verse 18. Verses 18 through the first half of 19, it doesn't tell us the details of the people's repentance, but it does tell us that God was moved with pity toward his people. Look there with me. Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people. Check this, the Lord became jealous for his land and the Lord had pity on his people. We're not going to linger here long so we can get deeper into our text. But before we move on, I want to pose a couple of questions. The first one is this, what does it mean that the Lord became jealous? I mean, isn't jealousy, a, isn't that a bad thing? This, this Monday, actually, of this week, I, I had to pop into a gas station. I got gas, and I went in to pay cash at the counter. And as I walked into the gas station, right here on the corner in Ringgold, I walked into these words. One lady behind the counter speaking to another lady behind the counter. She said, and she was so jelly. And that's all I heard. So I walk in, I said, excuse me? And the other lady interpreted that for me. She said, she, said she was so jelly. I said, Okay. And she said, well, that means she was jealous. I said, ah, okay. So I knew what jelly meant, but it's typically what I spread on my sandwich. And she was letting me know that actually, no, she wanted something that had come to the other person. And she was quite jelly over it. When you look at it this way, I can understand the little confusion as it relates to now. I'm reading in the scriptures, not just here, but throughout the Old Testament, that God is a jealous God. So let's, let's look at this just for a moment. What, what does that mean? And in short, let me say this. God will not share his glory with another. He is to be the object of all glory given in worship, not just the worship service, like we say, but in worship altogether. He is to be the object of all glory in worship, attention, affection and praise and it would be spiritual adultery for there to be someone or something that would take the place of supremacy that is rightfully his so god rightly guards his own glory and he does so with a passionate jealousy for his glory as well as this verse indicates, verse 18, he is passionately loyal, zealous, jealous to those who are his. So God is jealous for his glory. God is jealous 
for his people. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. What's another word for pity? In short, just kind of to pack this away for us, mercy, mercy. God's display of pity was predicated, however, upon the people's genuine contrition, their humility, their repentance. Whatever it is that we didn't get to see behind the curtain on that took place between verse 17, them crying out for mercy, the priest standing in between the altar and the vestibule, and their response, God heard it, received it, and was moved with pity. I'll take you back one more time just to hear this, to Leviticus 26. So we've read the blessings of the covenant. We've read some of the curse and the punishments of not keeping the covenant, which frankly, no one can except one. But in Leviticus chapter 26, we read early in the chapter you scooch you on down to verses 40, 41, and 42, and I want you to hear where the author, in Leviticus, God has said how he would respond to godly sorrow over sin. Okay? Here's what he says in 2640. But if they confess their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers, and in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Can I give you the sermon in a sentence? God mercifully moves toward the contrite with the aim of restoration for his glory. God mercifully moves toward the contrite, the broken, the humbled, the one who responds rightly to brokenness and the conviction of sin. God mercifully moves toward the contrite with the aim of restoration for his glory. The rest of the passage that we're going to look at can easily bro be broken down into three parts, although it's, it's one big singular response of God to the people's response to the conviction of sin and to the heaviness of the plague of locusts. Right? So if you're here for the first time this morning, that's what we've seen thus far is God's discipline has led them to a point. And the discipline was severe, but they clearly have responded in a way that has led to God moving in contrition, not in contrition, but in um, forgiveness. From each of these sections in this passage, I've pulled out one word from each that I hope will help you remember the gospel message found in Joel chapter 2. There are three sections. I'm going to give you all three words. We're going to look at the first two this Sunday morning. Hear the words. Removal. Replacement. And restoration. 
removal, replacement, and restoration. Each of these three words are gospel words. And they're deeply planted in the pages of the Old Testament. But really, why would we not expect to see and find the gospel in the Old Testament? After all, the mystery of the gospel to include the removal of our reproach and the removal of our enemies. To include replacing our fear with joy and gladness. To include the restoring, restoring all that the locust had eaten. So the mystery of the gospel has been packed within the pages of the Old Testament and it has been God's plan since before the foundation of the world. This is part of the good news of the gospel. It's not plan B. It's always been God's plan to woo wayward sinners back to his relational arms. That plan would eventually call for God's sinless and only begotten son although he was innocent, to absorb the curses, to absorb the punishment of the curse so that those who believe in him and those who by faith run to him in trust and faith might receive his righteousness and his right standing before the Father. So what was true of him might be applied to all who trust in him by faith. Genesis 3.15. We get the first hint of it. God says while he issues the curse to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. We see the same gospel message sprinkled in through the prophet Isaiah. Surely he, we know this to be Jesus that he's speaking to, but he's referring to him as the suffering servant. And Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, the chastisement of the curse was that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Look into the New Testament. And that gospel message has the same clarity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not remain under the curse of the law, would not perish, but would have everlasting and eternal life. Well, let's look now. All that's preface. But let's look now at how God moved toward the contrite with the aim of restoration for his glory in Joel. Look at verse 19, chapter 2. Verses 19 and 20, actually. Under the first word, removal. First word of two this morning, removal. 
Notice first how God removed their reproach. God removed their reproach. Here's verse 19. Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I don't know that I need to remind you, but you read back through chapters 1 and the first part of chapter 2 of Joel and the reproach, the effect of God's army of this locust had been devastating, right? Their fields had been decimated and the prospect of survival was, listen, it was grim at best. What's worse? And I kind of put that in relative terms, right? But what's worse is their humiliation, the humiliation that they had experienced and suffered by their own doing, but at the hand of God. It was on stage, center stage, for all the nations to see. And the reproach, however, had met with God's intention. So in other words, God used the reproach to to bring them to a brokenness that they responded to. And and when it met with God's intention of bringing them to an end of themselves, they had finally gotten the message. It wouldn't be the last time that they finally get the message. But in this moment, they're finally getting the message. And there was a lot at stake, right? You think about this. Not only is the well-being and survival of God's people at stake, but so is the glory of His great name and the glory of His holy name for which He is jealous. Verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for His land. But hear this. God mercifully was responding to their contrition and abundant provision. So He was responding to their sorrow, their repentance, their contrition, by abundantly providing, but also, second thing here that I would have you see, in addition to God removed their reproach, God removed their enemies. God removed their enemies. Notice what it says as we keep reading now, verse 20. It says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. It's important to kind of make note of who the he is we're talking about. Who is the he that God is saying for he has done great things? We've got a lot of questions to kind of unpack as we walk through this section. What does God mean by the northerner in this passage? I will remove the northerner far from you. Throughout the Old Testament, the term northerner is used to refer to the physical enemies of God's people. It would be used to direct our attention to the Assyrians, the Babylonians. So whether God means a human army like the Babylonians and Assyrian that will come in the near future to humble his people and lead them into the exile, or if he's referring to the remaining effects of this locust army is an area of great debate among theologians. And and I I land on the side of thinking that given the context of Joel, and because the date of Joel is so unclear, 
I believe God is still referring to the locust that he removed with the same sovereign power that he used to bring the locust into uh, their area in the first place, regardless of the true identity of the northerners of chapter 2, however. It is no debate that God has promised to drive them out. The New American Standard, the NIV, uses a future tense when he's referring to God will do this. But in the ESV, the, the publishers of the ESV, they're using this in a stated fact as a result of what they have done. They've been contrite. They've repented. Here's what I'm going to do. I must take a little pause in the conversation for a moment and, and ask you to consider we who do not deal with locusts in great abundance. And although we do have enemies at the gate in our physical presence and, of course, nation to a great extent, we also wrestle with enemies that are spiritual at hand. Maybe they are holdovers from your flesh. Maybe they are those sins which so easily entangle that you just have such a hard time with putting to rest and running away from. I want you to know in the same way that God was faithful and able to deliver his people from the, the, the northerners that's mentioned in chapter 2, God is also faithful and able to do the same to your enemies today. And I don't mean your boss or your neighbor. I'm talking, I'm asking you to consider an aspect of this. Not that we spiritualize everything, but I would like for us to see our enemies in part as the leftover remnants of our flesh that are wreaking havoc among us. And then I would ask you, Christian, to believe in the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in the same sovereign hand who had the ability to drive out the northerners from the land of Jerusalem, from the land of Zion, to entrust him to do the same miraculous work for that which remains of the old man inside of you. Trust that to the Spirit of God. Tell your brothers and sisters that you are praying to God for a miraculous deliverance of things that are holding you captive that have no business holding you captive because the gospel has broken the power of sin in your life. Not broken the temptation to sin. Not broken your yanking on the hook of temptation to sin. But it has broken the power. You need not be held captive by sin's lure any longer. Trust the sovereign hand of God to do that mighty work of delivering you from your enemies. Let's keep going for a moment. Notice, if you will, in verse 20, God's acknowledgement, maybe even empathy might be a better word, or sympathy, um, about this northerner. Uh, verse 21, I said 20. No, it's actually 20. Forgive me. The last part of 20 says, For he has done great things. Store this away because 
what is being referred to is that the northerner has done great things in their midst. Great being in the sense of awesome, not great in the sense of, oh, this is so, this is cool. I want everybody to see this and take selfie photos of the cool things that's happening. Great in the sense that these are horrifically bad things that have happened and they've been strong. They've been powerful. They have brought them to their knees, but it will pale in comparison to the next time God brings up the same language, which he will do in verse 21. By great things in 20, God is speaking of the devastation that had taken place. However, God will use this same phrase again in verse 21 to highlight the great things that he has done, which makes all other great things pale in comparison. Psalm chapter 126, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist writes this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. What's the next expression of the great things that the Lord has done in the days of Joel in this passage? In a word, this. Replacement. Replacement. Removed Removal, I think is the word I said. Removal and then second, replacement. And it's this section that will take us through verses 21 through 24. And what he's done is he has replaced, he's made a replacement from fear to joy and gladness. From fear to joy and gladness. Let me address these one at a time. Fear. Fear was a byproduct of the curse. This is why I wanted to direct your attention to Leviticus chapter 26. Do you remember those curses associated with the covenant we read earlier? God had told the people this, I will visit you with panic. You will flee when none pursue you. I was writing this out and thinking about this and my mind just went to silly songs that my family has sung throughout the years. There's nothing redemptive about this song at all. Mainly it was ringing in the back of my head as I drove on family vacations in the little, what started out probably as a VHS movie behind me in a little television we used to strap to the back seat or then we had this little DVD player and stuff and, and we would often watch, or they would watch and I would hear it, The Lion King 3. In the Lion King 3, it highlights these little meerkats. And these dudes live in a state of constant fear. They're, they're panicked all the time. And they'd stick their heads up out of the ground and they'd sing this song, Quick, before the hyenas come. Quick, before the hyenas come. And they just lived in this state of fear, running when nobody's chasing them. To the land in Joel chapter 21. Listen to this. To the land. God says fear not. 
To the beast of the field, God says, fear not. Both the land and the beast of the field had every reason to fear. Look back at chapter 1 of Joel, verse 17, 18, 20. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. How the beast groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the beast of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Listen to me. This, I want you to hear this. Think about sin's far reach. The people's sin and rebellion had caused even the land and the animals to suffer the effects of the curse. This in and of itself should be a warning to all of us to run from sin. The pain and effect of sin is not limited to the one who committed the sin, but has ripple effects that impact spouses, families, churches. You don't believe me? Ask King David. Ask David who watched 70,000 of his people die from the plague that the Lord brought about as a result of the sin of him having his people counted. A thing that he had been expressly commanded not to do and warned against doing from his general. However, and this is good news. Hear this good news. As a result of the people's heartfelt brokenness and genuine repentance, fear was being replaced. They weren't, they weren't sticking their heads up out of the sand wondering what plague of locusts is coming next, wondering what catastrophic army is coming next. Why? Because God is there. And God was their refuge and their strength. And their fear was being replaced with joy and gladness. They had suffered greatly. But remember... God mercifully moves toward the contrite with the aim of restoration for his glory. The countenance of a child of God that has experienced his mercy in response to their true brokenness and genuine repentance is not fear. But it's joy and gladness. Psalm chapter 42 speaks of this. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I hope you'll allow me if you, just for a moment to linger on this subject of brokenness and repentance for just a moment. And I, I hope this is a practical help for us. In his book, The Calvary Road, author Roy Hessian defines brokenness this way. He refers to it by saying that brokenness in daily experience, so our day-to-day, the way we flesh out brokenness, brokenness in daily experience is simply the response of humility to the conviction of God. Being broken before God 
is a gracious work that God initiates in children, His children. But the process involves us as well. He brings pressure to bear, but we have to make a choice. If we're open to the conviction of God and His discipline and we're receiving that from Him and if we seek fellowship with Him, if we desire the health that comes from walking in the light, then God, who grants repentance, will show us the expression of our pride. He'll make that known to us, right? And He'll let us know that Walking in that pride, walking in sinful rebellion against him stunts our growth and causes him grief. We can either stiffen our necks in those moments, oops, refusing to repent, refusing to walk in the light, or as we've already seen in Joel chapter one, chapter two, forgive me, We can rend our hearts and not our garments and say, yes, Lord, do this restorative work in me. This is costly for the believer. You know why I say that? It's costly for the believer who wants to hold on to their sin and their self and the desires of their flesh. But for the believer who wants to walk in life and wholeness before the Lord, when we run away from our sin to a faithful God whose nature is to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the trade-off is beyond compare. Ephesians chapter 3. Think about this. About this trade-off. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power of his work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What sins, friends, are you holding on to thinking that its satisfaction and the satisfaction that it promises is anywhere close to what is offered in Christ. But back to Joel, if you would. In response to their true brokenness and genuine repentance, somewhere between that 17 and 18, their fear was replaced with joy and gladness. And it is no empty promise, friends, that we can enjoy the same. Why? Because we've not been given a spirit of fear. A spirit of love and power and self-control. And I would add to that, thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God that the, the power of the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And through it, our fear of failure our fear of being stuck in the rut of of stagnant walk before the Lord or loss of our fleshly things we've got a grip hold on to is replaced with joy and gladness. We'll talk about this more next week. He's replaced fear to joy and gladness. Let's talk just for a moment about joy and gladness and I'll 
allow the text to do it all. I'll take some time to elaborate on it next week. Verses 21 through 24 give us a full description of God's great provision that he's brought about for his people, that he intended to produce the fruit of joy and gladness in him. The only worthy object of our praise and affection is Jesus. And notice what he's done to bring that about. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, he says for the first time, for the Lord has done great things. Notice that the northerner had done great thing, but God has done a greater thing by dispelling our enemies and pushing them and casting them out into the eastern and western seas. Fear not, he says, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats will overflow with wine and oil. What does this have to do with us? We don't have thresh threshing floors anymore we're not reliant upon the seasons for our family to eat today but what's being pictured here is God's great provision for his children which began for us by the provision of Jesus it was intensified and reiterated then by his provision of all great things to include even a reversal of the things as the way things were back in the garden originally before sin fell. For the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Since the early days of the Garden of Eden, man has been offered false ways of obtaining happiness and joy. It's the great salesman. Sales offer our culture has to offer, but can never pay back. The serpent tempted our first parents with the lie that the answer to this quest is found in being their own God, their own sovereign. But clearly that led to nothing but empty and vain pursuits. Sin can never satisfy, but it will only cause one's thirst to never be quenched and one's hunger to never be satiated a fact that will follow throughout all eternity for the one that chooses the world over Christ today. Psalm chapter 34, verse 10 says this. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord like no good thing. And it's that good thing from the hand of God who has done great things that I point you to this morning. If you don't know Christ in this room, can I issue the same call that the prophet did and say to you, come and drink from waters that satisfy. Come and taste of Jesus. Receive the life that he offers. And he offers it for you in exchange for his own. And it was his life that he offered as a ransom and as a payment and satisfaction for the effect and punishment that the curse demanded Yet he stepped in and bore our curse on a tree 
so that we would not have to because we could not have done it and lived. But he could and did so that we can receive Christ today. Be saved. Walk in newness of life. Let the old things that have defined your life be done away with by God's grace so that everything by his grace and the blood of Jesus can be made new. And believer, you've been reminded this morning that the effect and power of the gospel does not stop at your salvation, but it is present to aid you, to draw you to repentance so that when you find yourself in sin or tempted to bite the hook of sin, that you see it as a failing and vain pursuit and see Christ is glorious. See God in his jealous, rightful place of supremacy in our lives as the only thing that satisfies and run to him. And when you find yourself falling on your face in sin, know that the God who loves you, who gave his son Jesus for you, is faithful to forgive you from sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and then walk in life by God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message of Joel. Thank you for removing the power that our enemy had over us. Thank you for the testimony of removing the physical enemies, the northerners, from your children, from Zion. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your great power to replace our fears with joy and gladness. May, Lord, the countenance of you be the countenance of us. May you bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon you. Would you continue through the gospel impact and effect to be gracious to us? And would you lift up our countenance upon you and give us peace through the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.